0: You're listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM in New Haven. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Today's guest is chef and urban planner Adrian Lipscomb, who owns Uptown Cafe in the small city of La Crosse, Wisconsin. Adrian is praised widely for her delicious farm-fresh food and her work to champion Black food ways. She focuses much of her energy on community revitalization through storytelling, as well as civic projects, including last year's organizing of the Juneteenth dinner at the James Beard House and her current 40 Acres in a Mule project to establish a Black-owned farm and support food sovereignty in Wisconsin. Oh, and did I mention she has four children? Adrian, thank you so much for making time to talk with me today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: Yes, so um, I'm so happy you're here, and I just want to put this in the context of what is going on in the world around us, because I think this will weave through through everything. But we are in the midst of some of the largest protests in our country as well as globally around racial justice, around ending police violence, and in support of Black Lives and abolition. And we are also in the middle still of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, So I think, you know, we'll be weaving that through everything we talk about, but I wanted to start off since it's about to be Juneteenth and and Juneteenth falls on the 19th of June every year. Can you give us some information about what is the Juneteenth holiday and also how you as someone growing up in Texas grew up celebrating it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Juneteenth is a very special holiday, especially to Black Texans, um, because it reveres into our ancestors and um, what they went through. Um, so if we look at it, I believe it's like January 1st of, you know, 1863, I believe is the date. Um, emancipation the Proclamation was set in that slaves were free. Um, unbeknownst to really slaves in Texas, that did not become apparent till two years later, when Lincoln literally took military down to say, you have to release the slaves. So it ends up being, and I believe that was like in April, like two years later in April. So two years of not knowing that you were free. I, I just couldn't imagine what that feeling was like, or or even when they freed you what happens next mm-hmm. um so i believe that was in april and so juneteenth ended up being the day that of celebration um a lot of things that ended up happening people would dress in like their sunday best come out and they would meet but it was also a time to find family these um found like pinpoints so there's like emancipation park in houston was Bought by black black freed slaves, and they used that as a celebration point because people, black people, couldn't celebrate or go publicly or have a public space. So this was like their safe haven, and um, it was a park in which uh, black people would meet, especially on Juneteenth, to hopefully find family members that they've lost that were sold mm. or they were separated at a time. So you know, for me, Juneteenth uh, leads a whole celebration of one getting your family together and having that, you know, having that, you know, that, that point where we are just one. And then also we have the, the feeling of we are celebrating our freedom as a whole um, from being slaves. Um, I think it's quite interesting now that it looks like it's going to, people would like for it to be a national holiday. And, um, you know, as it's not even really a state holiday, even when I work for the state, our work for the city um i took that day off <laughs> it was mm-hmm. to me it was a it was a holiday And when people asked me i was like i'm on a black holiday this is juneteenth um and <laughs> yeah. reverence of when i moved out of state a lot of people didn't even know what juneteenth was um some people did or they had you know an idea of what it could be uh, but for me even though i'm not at, in texas right now we do celebrate it
0: yeah it's so powerful i think to um think about the holiday in that really intensely personal way, especially in the beginning when people were going and trying to find their family members. Because I think sometimes when people talk about it as like an Independence Day or the day that slavery was proclaimed to be over in in Galveston, Texas, that it seems like this abstract thing, but it's so powerful to hear about the way that people were actually, all these families that were torn apart by the slave owners and, and kind of actually going and trying to find each other and reconnect and Um, I think hearing that personal part of it for me like makes it um, it makes it much more real about like what was actually going on at that time
1: right I mean it it was part of our history I mean in history class when I was younger I we knew about the holiday Um, it wasn't like I said it wasn't a school holiday it wasn't you know, uh, a time that which you know the banks were closed or etc. But you know, as I got older, I started taking that day off, and that day was to be with family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that day was to cook and to come together and have picnics and such, so we could, you know, we could be together um, because you know, part of it is it's it's summer down in Texas, so you know your kids are out of school. This is a great way for everyone to come together and get with your family. Um, And kind of like a remembrance of having that, um, you know, family reunion during the summer.
0: Right. Are there special um, particular foods that, like heritage foods that became really um, important on celebrating Juneteenth with your family?
1: I think it was more me for, it was more of the food that could travel because we would, you know, travel and be together or we were going to a park. So those foods that were um, easily travel or even barbecue was a, is a main one, Texas barbecue coming together and cooking, uh, cooking oh. it. Or it was also being, you know, fried chicken, watermelon, you know, potato salad, just those great barbecue fares that you would always have during the summer um, would be on the table.
0: Yeah. Um, So last year you organized this pretty incredible feast at the James Beard house with like a huge crew of amazing African-American chefs. And I was reviewing, I saw it happen last year, but went back and looked at some of the pictures of the food. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little about um, what you did, what happened, who was there and, and tell us a little about the food and kind of the, even the stories that got shared at that event.
1: Yeah, it was uh, quite interesting. When I was asked to do this event, I thought I need to bring in other people. I couldn't do this alone. Um, And I also thought it would be great to see what Juneteenth was for them. Um, So I had some people from the South that were there. I had uh, Chris Williams from Lucille in Houston uh, came in and then we had um, Enrica Williams and she was from Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Joy was from um, she's in Austin. I had David Thomas he, he's from Baltimore and he at the time was at Idaby's table. So they all had some kind of enrich of knowledge of knowing what Juneteenth was about. I also had Omar Tate um, from New York was there too uh, with him. He's just a honeysuckle pop up mm-hmm. and it was all in in steel what the history meant to them and then how could they bring that out in a dish? Oh, also Therese Nelson. Oh my gosh, how could I forget her? Mm -hmm. Therese Nelson was also there. And that, you know, event of bringing in Black culinary history, this wasn't just something that we said, hey, what does Juneteenth mean for you and make a meal? They really thought about this and the concept and the idea and flowed with each other and understanding what other people's dishes were and, you know, what the story meant to them or what that dish exactly. Meant to them and why. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to pretty much do a storytelling, and that's what a lot of like what I like to do with my food is the story to tell why we decided to put these dishes together. Um, the, I, you know, one of the most amazing things is, is first we're at the James Beard House, which is usually a predominantly white event that happens, but it's an all black crew in the kitchen cooking, um, which is significant. You know, yeah, um, sure. to be in that space or even be, you know, giving or making that space for us to tell a story about Black history or Black te- Texas history, um, that's just significant, you know, and being who the audience was, was very diverse. Uh, They're wanting to know the story, wanting to know the food and wanting to hear our, you know, hear what we were thinking and why we decided to do those dishes.
0: Yeah. I love so much that you incorporate storytelling into food. Like, as a chef myself, who now records stories about food and and race and culture and liberation work, like I obviously very much connect with that. Did you literally have chefs like serve their dish and then tell the story while people were eating it?
1: So, in how the event um, ended up happening for this one, we ended up being able to do that. Um, it, it was quite interesting in the fact that people were very inquisitive and they were asking a lot of questions about certain dishes and you know things that we could not get in new york we brought in so you know if it was purple hull peas um if it was you know i made my own hot sauce so i had to bring that with me so you know there were certain things that we did not that you couldn't get in New York, that we're only in Texas, or we could only right. feel that we could have it in Texas, that we shipped up to New York and was like, you have the only way you would understand this is if you eat it and it's rooted from Texas. Um, so that made it even more special for us to be able to have this event,
0: yeah. yeah. Can you share like either a story that you shared about your dish or if there was a story someone else shared, just to, to help understand like, how do you tell story through food? through a dish
1: i you know for us i mean for the dishes that that did come out and you know for me so like one one thing i made and it was an appetizer that went out before everything else is that i made tamales and a lot of people were pretty shocked that you know a black woman can make tamales but i'm from texas and originally from san antonio so this is in my heritage of making tamales and um i think that portion of bringing in the understanding of that there's a, it's multicultural in Texas and you were talking, you know, slavery, we're talking more than just black slaves that were in slavery that were freed during Juneteenth. So this is the time where we're, we're, you know, I'm able to share and express that this culture was multi, was multicultural across the board of this is a huge celebration and that it's for, you know, everybody that was under slavery not just for blacks.
0: Mhm. Yeah, it also I saw that and it and I was thinking how much that connects you and roots you to the land that you're on cuz like corn, right? Like if people didn't have all the yams or other things that were traditional in like West and Central African cooking but they had corn and so then how do you kind of do cuz like moi moi and different things is like you take a a leaf and you, like, make a paste that gets steamed in the same way that a tamale does, except that here you're using corn because that is, like, of the land where, where and you And I mean, You Texas. can even
1: see the delta tamale, uh, you know, headed towards the Mississippi. So, you know, it was, an, it was able to be doing this, this storytelling of, you know, how this really affects you and how this is a part of your culture. And, you know, and with Chris Williams from Houston, his um, grandmother was one of the first um, business owners and uh black business owners and um that made a lot of money and was well known for making hot rolls so for this to be an impactful you know be pretty impactful for him to come out and be able to tell the story and the connection between the history and i think everybody had their own little you know brush with it even though they're not from texas but they understood the meaning and what it meant to them and that is what was significant about that dinner.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really powerful. I love that you brought so many different people together to share because it sh- it really illustrates that there isn't just one story, as well, which is like so powerful. So I'm I'm sort of curious about this year in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of all of. You know, these incredible, this horrible police violence, these incredible protests and this all of a sudden, like people are advocating for abolition of police. And and like the there is obviously not among all Americans, but there is suddenly, you know, this um, deeper level of people talking about systemic racism, talking about how do we pull money away from police, put it into to the black community, put it into social services like Let's get police out of schools, like things people have been fighting for for generations. And then all of a sudden, in like a few weeks, like the narrative is shifting. And I'm curious how you feel as Juneteenth is is just about here and um, there's all this upheaval and change and and still, you know, horrible violence that's going on, how you're feeling about Juneteenth this this year with all this stuff going on.
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting because where I'm located at, so I'm located two hours away from Minneapolis and, you know, and like two to three hours away from Madison and Chicago's not far and neither's Milwaukee. So we, you know, being surrounded and hearing the violence that is occurring and the protesting that is re- occurring around us. And I'm in this cooley regional valley where, you know, there's probably 2% black, you know, and the community here has, Come out in full force in support of Black Lives Matter, um, and it's difficult. I mean, I am one of few black, you know, business owners, and one of few, very few of um, black um, restaurant owners. So it it really does tug at me because you know I have kids and I have boys too. I have three boys, and. You know, what stories do I going to tell them? What are they seeing? How is this really affecting them? And then we're on top of dealing with COVID and shelter in place, you know, so okay. trying to make them have a better life or a better understanding what the world is, um, but also trying to navigate it ourselves, because this is something that's so new, even for for me, to as a parent that has to, you know, find ways to navigate the navigate the story that it doesn't, you know, affect them so much, but they understand their rights and their freedoms. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for you know, for what we're dealing with at this moment, um it's it's difficult. You know, as a black female, um hearing the stories and seeing the violence and understanding that it could have been my uncle, it could have been my dad, it could have been a cousin, it could have been my kid, you know, that really put something in me to, to be more cautious, to be more aware of my situations, but also to challenge, challenge what's wrong and challenge and make sure, you know, and understanding what space that I have and what space that I allow myself to create. And so people can understand, um, you know, it has been, of very um, interesting situations and um, in which you have a lot of people that are apologizing to me you know saying sorry oh, wow really and yeah and you're kind of like sorry for what <laughs> you know and I you know and I know that they can't find the right words to, to express you know how they're really feeling about the situation I've had people want to give me money uh you know in in, in monetary you know in monetary values because they they feel like they need to and you know that makes you question who you are as a person um you know is it because is it because of white guilt is it because you know i'm you know as i'm black or is it because you know they see something in me in the project but necessarily in like why? You know, that was a very large question. So that's how, um, you know, the development of understanding where, where am I? And what legacy am I leaving? Um, it becomes one of the most important factors um in my life right now for our legacy for my kids, but also a legacy uh within the foodways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I very much relate to that, like having kids of different ages as well, like how how the story and complexity of what you tell and how you discuss it like evolves as they get older. And yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. What they see. And I mean, they're sponges, you know, I, you know, I have a kid that just turned 14 and, you know, he's over six feet and you know, the perception of what people think he is or who he is. And, and then I have my youngest is four months. So they absorb, they absorb our feelings. They absorb, what we're looking at they are expressions our emotions so you know being careful but also wanting them to know like to know the truth and what they've lived through so they can understand this in the future
0: yeah um you know in the vein of this we just had this um bon appetit just fired uh adam Rappaport and there's like Woo. all of this yeah. <laughs> stuff coming out around kind of the culture this really oppressive culture within Bon Appetit but I think within the publishing and it's obviously not just the publishing industry it's it's every industry but um I know you've been very vocal around this and sort of the treatment of black and brown people and indigenous people within the kind of food writing and publishing world and I just want to invite you to share thoughts that you have um about what's going on yeah
1: I I think you know I have been very vocal I've been very vocal from the beginning um That's after, why you know, we love you. after <laughs> yeah after after you know after what happened to uh, George Floyd I was very um vocal um especially about um hospitality organizations and how we weren't hearing anything but also the understanding of what you know what now you know we we're going through COVID, we're not even through COVID, you know, it's not post COVID yet. We're going through COVID and how they were able to mobilize so quickly for looking at policies and looking for grants and looking for, funding and loans and supporting and so you're sort of referring to some of these like
0: celebrity white male chefs who like went to Washington. Yeah these
1: organizations that the, the the celebrity chefs that came out and support and sponsored and got and bought lobbyists and you know really pulling these you know these people out to to push you know federal government to make a change. And I was like where are they now? I was like, this is not the time to take a break, you know, dust yourself <laughs> off, get up. Right. And I said, if you said we are united and we're going to go through this and we are going to open one day, we, we need to realize we can't open the same way we did before COVID, pre-COVID, understanding that restaurants are now forever changed. But that means we don't have to bring that behavior that was on the line or in front of house towards people of color or black and indigenous people. Like we help lay the foundation of what our restaurant and food is today. And they're laid on our backs, literally. So what does that look like for us in the future? I thought it's about time, like hospitality step up. It's like, it's no secret. It's no secret. The amount of racism, uh, the amount of oppression, um, sexism, uh, you know, even people you know not paying the same wages i mean it, it is prevalent throughout restaurants and and it's well known this is the time that we need to start talking about change and how are we going to do this so i you know i'm really challenging the hospitality industry and hospitality organizations to step up and to and to say hey this isn't right Let's be leaders to lead that way. And yeah. I mean the hospitality. I mean media. I'm, you know, I'm talking about the networks too. I mean, I can't tell you how many times you've been called to be wanted to be on a network show, but they're specifically looking for a black person because they really don't allow us in without an invitation. Mm-hmm. So it, we don't feel comfortable in that space. That you know we are trying to fill a quota for people. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily what we want to do so you know we turn it down or when you're having the capability to to audition for a show and they want you to act a certain way they want you to act what they believe black people should act like i mean they're trying to create a character out of us Mm, and for me it's like the realize you know the realization of that they really don't know black people they really don't know black chef they really don't know black foodways and black foodway culture, which kind of laid the ground for some of these spaces. Um, So, you know, I still challenge them to step up and, you know, and write, you know, they're writing words, but I need to see actions. And even in the point of I'm asking them to self-reflect on their own selves and their past, change and then do action. So I hope that these organizations will step up and realize that we are at this point permanently losing a lot of small businesses, minority small businesses, um, due to COVID at this moment, and nobody's really identifying the loss. You know, they're not really identifying the loss in their in their surveys that they're sending out. They're really not identifying the loss across the way of mom and pop shops that have been open for 30 right. to 40 years. The only way I hear about them is if somebody in the news decides to write something about it and it's usually locally. So mm-hmm. there's, I don't think until post COVID or maybe a year, a year and a half from now, we're really going to understand the loss of the black food ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's another reason why I decided to work on 40 acre, the 40 acre project to help, um, bring this to light on uh, the losing in, in black farming and agriculture and also within our food ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I was just going to ask you to explain that, what that was. So people were coming at you saying, we want to give you money. And you were like, all right, let me figure out like yeah. how to funnel this into something that is going to make a difference. Right. And in the vein of Juneteenth, it's about like freedom and liberation of like Liberation is on land is what Malcolm X said, right? Like there's right. so like when you don't own land and you don't own the means of food production, like you are immediately at a disadvantage. So, what how did you come up with this idea to do the 40 acres and a mule project and and what what is it that you're you're trying to get started?
1: Yeah, so 40 acres, the 40 acre project came up I mean pretty much, you know, it was an overnight thought that left my mind running uh, with Sleepless uh, because of the, the wanting of giving me money, but I had like nothing to put that towards. How can I make an impact? But not just an impact that would just be something that just happens, but something that can lead into a legacy that was really mm-hmm. going to help preserve the Black food ways. So I think when I said, oh my gosh, Black land, what is that, what is that? What does that mean to own land? What about that freedom of owning land? What does that look like? And how much land? He said, okay, 40 acres and a mule. And, and if you know a little bit about that history, um, that was part of, you know, when the civil, when the war was over, that that was um, special um, order number 15, I believe. And that was to give all freed Blacks slaves families 40 acres in a meal and the meals that they were talking about were the meals that were serving in the war that they could they had so many they were like well we can give them a meal too um but what was ended up happening is that it did it didn't happen so 40 acres a meal didn't happen but that concept of almost being called reparations or being reparations that we are owed this um is still brought up today, you know. So long ago, is still brought up today. And forty acres—the forty acres project—was looked at as as part of how do we understand Black aquaculture? Um, there's so many Black people that have influenced agriculture today that people don't know about.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, what are Black traditions? I mean, I fully don't know them all of uh, Black traditions of uh, Black agriculture and Black farmers today. How do we preserve their story? Um, a lot of them are getting past their age and prime. We have uh, the percentage of black farmers is like less than 1% of ownership of land here. Right. That's scary. Um, how do we collect their knowledge in one space and then also teach and educate others that want to be farmers right. this information? Could yeah. this property or this land do that for them? And then foodways, where is our black foodways museums? Our information is kind of everywhere and they're shot on, on, different, on different spaces and different platforms or are in different museums, but there's no solid location for our, all of our foodways. So this would be an opportunity to be able to bring that there too. So you have farming and agriculture, but then you also have the foodways too. Yeah. So it just turned into a married of projects. And um, when we launched it, uh, the, uh, it, it was so unexpected how well it was received or how well it is being received. You know, we started talking about Africa, like what is that connection between what we know now and what is in Africa? So, um, you know, we'll be in further talks about maybe property in Africa how do we bring this connection together Um, yeah I you know I'm in Wisconsin um, but there's conversations about doing projects in the South too and you know gathering this information and and this goes beyond you know just being a chef that goes into my city planning roles of in my studies and looking at ethnography and how do we collect this information if they can write it out or if they can draw pictures or if we can record so we can figure this out of how our Black agriculture has developed, our Black food waste has, has developed and has transitioned to what it is today. Yeah, it's really it's really
0: powerful if you, um, so like the Leah Penniman wrote Farming While Black, and going, you know, reading through that book and looking at how so many of the things that we think of as um, sustainable agriculture that in this country we tend to associate with like white farmers and like hippie farmers and stuff right but so many of those practices are rooted in both african-american farmers and west and central african farming practices and so it's not only like the ways of existing black farmers but actually so much of the i'm not talking about like the the kind of industrial farming but like the other ways of farming that are these like intercropping and mounding and you know just all these different practices crop rotations and like ways to enrich soil like a million things are are rooted both in africa and in um george washington carver and in like the thousands and thousands and thousands of black folks on this land who who were forced into slavery and doing agricultural work and did incredible you know had a lot of inventions and then even after slavery was over ways that people were
1: were really um being super, innovative. they went to study it. I mean, right, I'll, I'll, exactly. They went to study it, and it went into entrepreneurship. In the in the word of you know, if if blacks had land, it was more than just freedom. It was an opportunity for economics, and it was an opportunity for community. It ended up being right. a larger picture. So you know, that's the way that I look at it. That this is an opportunity to expand, but also preserve these. Tre- conditions as we move forward through this and I mean and it's, it's an ample time is now like the time is now to do this. Um, yeah, and then sure. it, I think it goes beyond that because everybody starts talking reparations and that's when I start bringing that that city planning in and I start talking about policy and I'm like, well what's affordable housing? And right you know maybe our reparate, our reparations are more looking at the point of, affor- of our housing or affordable housing. you know our modern part of having land now is a home. So, you know, uh, a good majority of us do not farm, you know. So, you know, is land the most appropriate or is a home appropriate? Yeah,
0: I love that you're bringing it to that um, because I think that uh, the how like zoning and housing policy is often so much of when I'm talking to white folks about racism, what I try to like bring that into because it helps to illustrate like the way, like redlining and zoning policies, like all of those things affect your education, your health, your job, your opportunity, like everything—and and talking about not just the ability to own a home, but also all of the policies that go into who can own a home, where, and how. Um, even up until like the housing crisis, you know, the the horrible loans that that devastated right. primarily people in the black and brown communities. Um, those th- that is systemic racism, like very clearly. And so, how to um start getting like white folks and especially stuff people in the suburbs (laughs) and other places to understand that that like you want to work on anti-racism work like change zoning policy like that has an impact like across the board and so um I love that you're an urban planner. (laughs) You like mix all of these things together. It
1: all all interviews and connects with each other. And, you know, and, you know, talking to congressmen about these opportunities or these ideas, like literally trying to plant seeds. I'm using that pun, uh, plant seeds in their minds that, you know, this could really come to fruition. And just, you know, the understanding of like, just in agriculture, that those sustainable ways that you were talking about were Black-rooted, and we need to be willing to understand our history as as Black people, but also the nation needs to kind of understand this is where agriculture was, and we are going to lose these techniques if we do not preserve them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. It makes me think about how people have been talking about the need for truth and reconciliation uh, work in this country, because there's been no truth work, right? Like there's people just denying even just the, the, you know, I keep hearing you talking about, um, black food ways and there, even just that there's an argument about what Southern food is, that there's this idea that there's like white Southern food, but that it's not connected to like the black folks that were actually like the origin of cooking a lot of that food and the, this acknowledgement. And, um, yeah, I think that the importance of, of, um, the truth part of, of telling what's going on. And as you're saying, like documenting it so that people can continue to learn about it and
1: remember it. Right. And also, like you said, the acknowledgement, like, you know, give us our peace. We, we, we did make this, you know, and, you know, and we understand and we know our history and a lot of it was oral because we weren't right. We weren't allowed to write. So a lot of our information is oral. I mean, even recipes for my family, they're still told, um, verbally they're not written down really well. yeah yeah our family's well known for that so um and i know there's a lot of families that are like that too that they never wrote the recipes down that's where sort of like oh i wish i had my grandmother's recipe because you always just watch you you, right. you you were always a part of it to understand that story of how to make things you never just sat there and wrote it down or and my family's well known, like if you couldn't remember if it was a teaspoon or a tablespoon and you called you called my nana, my nana would be like, well, it looks like you need to come home. You haven't been home in a while. You, go, <laughs> you, go, you forgot this recipe. And you go That's home and great. you make it with them. Like yeah. with the, the understanding of, you know, where the stories come from within food in in the making of news stories, like you know the recipes that I learned or I was taught you know I'm sharing it with my kids, you know, my eldest is like, you know, so. When I leave, I get this recipe, right? Or when I, you know, you know, or he's like, when you die, you know, I get all these recipes, right? I get them, you know. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, I I feel really proud of like they're understanding our food ways and understanding the impact of what these recipes mean to our family and it will mean mm-hmm. to them. Mm. And so
0: are you, are you still not writing down the recipes? You're still passing them on orally? It's really hard.
1: I do. I haven't, you know, I, I have to write them down or I won't remember them because I have so many recipes that run in my head. Um, So I have like a thousand notebooks around me that I just, I never remember where I write it, but I usually, if I change something or I add something or I'm doing a new recipe, I end up writing a lot of them down, but a lot of it is by memory. Right. Um, You know, I can make a biscuit with my eyes closed, you know, you know. Pound cake I can my my grandmother's pound cake I can make that with my eyes closed, just certain things that are just rooted within I think it within your heart and in your hands like you know you feel it, you know it's right,
0: yeah, yeah absolutely that's how I've been teaching my kids too my my son was like you know he's got a couple more years before possibly leaving home and um we've been like intentionally teaching the recipes and I'm like, you have to do this 10 times, right? You can't just do it once. Right. Like You need to do right. it 10 <laughs> times to remember it. A few things are written down. Most of them are like, let me teach you how to make a salad dressing. Here's how you make the soup. Like, and let's just keep doing it over and over. So I love that you're, that you're passing that on to your kids. And like, I love that thing about if you don't remember, then you got to come home. Like that- that's so beautiful.
1: Yeah, That's it's beautiful. Just, like you have you have to go home. You have to go home, and you have to see them make it. You have to be a part of it, and you understand it. And it's like, oh, it was a tablespoon, or oh, it was a teaspoon. <laughs> and you're kind of like, I, I mean, when I was younger, I was mad. I was like, why didn't they just tell me? You know, like right. you just told me. And and it's more like, no, I needed to go home. I needed to be there. I needed to see it being done by her own hands and then I needed to taste it and you those memories just flow through you and you're like okay I got it I I I can make this yeah Yeah.
0: so you picked up and left Texas and moved to Wisconsin to the small town in Wisconsin like three four years
1: ago roughly yeah about four years ago um what what inspired that move (laughs) I was in Austin Texas at the time and it is hectic it is one of the busiest cities I've ever lived in. And it was just growing dramatically. And we were at the point we wanted to have more kids at the time we had one and, um, and I was pregnant with another. And we were starting to realize the future of of traveling to take a kid to violin class and after school programs was going to take two hours to go to the grocery store was going to take like an hour you know going there and back just the traffic you know and realizing was did we really want to raise our kid in, a, in this environment when we lose so much time um, with not being together uh, so I was doing a lot of traveling at the time um, you know in planning and, and doing in the Midwest and I decided that. Um, I would start looking at some of these cities and see where I could go. Um, the city of La Crosse is probably um, one of the most unique cities I've ever been into. It's a small city, um, but it was just something about it. Um, when I made the decision to move, we have, you know, it was just us. We, we came up here uh, very serendipitous. I had a meeting in a restaurant that was closed and um and talking to the owner we realized that there could be an opportunity here um in Austin I was going to school for my PhD I was working for the city I was uh teacher assistant so I was teaching and I was a mom so I was doing all these and things, didn't you and have a bakery I, also and I had a bakery How yeah you and I had a you're bakery amazing for three years there so it was <laughs> like yeah i was like i'm missing one i had a bakery too and so i just was like (laughs) how if we move what do we do with the bakery how does that how does that work what happens to our community that we that we feed um we ended up selling the bakery to an employee um and we moved up here and we opened a restaurant at brick and mortar uh i if you asked me four or five years ago if this was what i was going to be doing i probably would have laughed in your face but the bakery, the Uptown Bakery um, and Cafe that we have here is probably one of the most fulfilling places I've ever had. Um, when we came here, I think when we came here, we came here uh, officially around in September, and it was the year Trump was elected, mm-hmm. and uh, Wisconsin turned uh, red. So it was uh, quite significant being a stranger and you know my grandma was like come home yeah she was like come home don't be there and i had to be like nana texas is a red state so you know i had to like (laughs) i had to like tell her like you know texas is a red state too but um i and also standing rock was happening at the same time right right um so there was so much happening and i was eight months pregnant and um you know being hormonal or being what it was um, you know, I'm like, where's Standing Rock? Where? How far is that away from me, you know? And it was like nine hours, and I was like, that's not far. That's not far at all. And I was like, I can go. And my husband's like, no, no, you're not going to have a baby on Standing Rock. You need to just <laughs> stay home. And um, at the time, I had two friends that were invited by the student community to go cook at, um, in Standing Rock. And uh, they, I was like, are y'all driving through here? They were coming from Indiana, and and I said, if you drive through here, please feel free to stay at my house, get you some gas. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're bringing food, I had access to a commercial refrigerator. You can use that. Just you can take a rest, take a shower, you know. And they were like, that's great. But I was like, I can do more. I know I can do more. And um, they were like, no, 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 that's enough. And I was like, no, I can do more. <laughs> so what are you making and for how many? And they said, uh, my friend said she was making soup and she's making it for a thousand. And I said, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to make you bread rolls. Like in the back of my mind, I'm like going like, you got to get started now. To right. Bread rolls. <laughs> to get enough you're, done. You're right. crazy. You know? But I'm like, we're going to, I'm going to do this. And she was like, no. And I was like, I'm going to do this. Um, so I was like, how am I going to do this? <laughs> so I ended up writing on my social media with a couple of people that I didn't know in this town and asked people to meet me at our um, access to a commercial kitchen to make bread rolls. And didn't Um, you end up making like
0: 2,000 rolls or something like that? I ended up making
1: over 5,000 rolls. Oh my goodness. Wow. um, At 8 a.m., we had like 30 people show up right off the bat. Wow. Didn't know know me. I didn't know them. And they were ready to make rolls. And that, I believe, was like the first part that I knew I was really at the right place. And I was really in a place that was about community. Because they saw something that was wrong. They didn't know how to help. But this was an opportunity to make a difference, and this is where Thanksgiving. Yeah. So by 11 o'clock, we made 2,000 rolls, and people looked around, and they were like, what's next? And I said, like, we're going to make some more rolls. And so people ran to the store, came back with flour and ingredients, and we made some more rolls. And so all together, we made 5,000, over 5,000 rolls. And I mean, that didn't end that, because I, I said I was going to be there till 5 we had people showing up in suits and that would just move their tile out of the way and start helping cleaning. I mean, it was like, <laughs> That's crazy. it was like, so grassroots. Like they were yeah. like, anything I can do, wash a dish. You, you just saw the transition of people coming in, wives bringing their husbands and they're like, they can go over there and just put bread together, but they're coming here to help, you know. My youngest one was about uh, four and my oldest one was 92. So Um. just to have this community, like, and it was like a great way to kind of introduce myself to this community that just showed up, you know, hour upon hour just to help make bread was quite amazing.
0: Yeah, that's great. And so did your restaurant, we just have a couple minutes left, but
1: did your restaurant sort of grow out of that? Yeah, so yeah, we were in the process of opening the restaurant and what we had did was I invited a couple people who were in planning um, to come up and help the community kind of find their voice because the area that we were in was in the midst of trying to revitalize. And we were like, well, what does the community want? How can we grab this information about the community to help decide what this will be? when I decided to open a restaurant, I just didn't want to open a regular restaurant. I wanted people to understand that we needed them to survive and okay. and to understand that this was their space too. And this was their safe space that they could come to. So we had the opportunity to watch kids grow up. We get to really know our neighbors. We get to work with the community. We talk about beautification of our area. We talk about events. We help out. We do help with nonprofits. We, you know, it's it spirit out that all, all of us came together, business, residents, organizations in the area, to help. Then, you know, like, it's far off, like, a business helped bring a farmer's market in our area. We're really in a food swamp, and a food desert. Um, you know, those are, you know, words that people like to use. But our closest grocery store is over a mile away. And if you wanted fresh fruits and vegetables, you had to go to the gas station. So we wanted to bring an opportunity to bring fresh fruits, and vegetables to them. And so, you know, for a business to spare off and just be like, I'm going to do this and this is going to happen is amazing. And that's part of what being a community is like, is like just being able to just kind of light the match and then just watch everything come together.
0: Mm, Yeah. I love hearing you talk about this because it's, I mean, I feel as I'm listening, I'm like, this is part of your Black food ways manifesting, like, in the way that you run a business, right? Like, th- you're. this is, like, the history of, of like, really community-rooted um, businesses and food businesses and, like, that you bring this sort of intentional connection to urban planning and community development that you also have a PhD in <laughs> and that you can, like, translate also into sort of, like, city planning language for people to understand why this is important and and how this is about economic development and undoing racism and all of these other things so you there's a lot of things people should be listening to you about so i'm (laughs) I'm, i'm honored that you're talking um it's really good uh so how we have to wrap up unfortunately but how should people find you
1: yeah, so they can either come visit me at Uptown Cafe, uh, but it will be curbside of delivery. <laughs> oh my goodness, open. I didn't even
0: ask you about yeah. COVID in your business. Ooh, yeah, so we're quit.
1: curbside delivery right now. We did, decided not to open our doors for the safety of our community, family, and friends. Um, your town is
0: reopened right now, right?
1: My town is reopened. The whole state is reopened, so yeah. Okay. Um, are you? They can look up uh, the 40 Acres Project on Instagram. I'm very active there. I, do respond back. So please do hit us up um, or they can, they can find us at uptowncafeandbakery.com too.
0: Great. And I will put all of those things up on the dot So people can also find you super easy through that. So I have to just ask you for a second about COVID. So um, how, how are you surviving through, through the pandemic as a business?
1: Um, you know, being community rooted and in, into the fabric of our community has saved us. Um, people want our food, people know our food, but people know us and they want us to survive. So they come out and they're very supportive. So we've been lucky, you know, not to say at least a lot of people that haven't been lucky, but for us, staying open was about our employees. We didn't care if we broke even or not. It was just like, are, are, are our employees taken care of? That was our main thing. Um, and we sat down with them. And we had this conversation with them and did, asking them if they wanted to stay open. And, you know, they said, yes. So we've been weaving and through this and, it, and it's, you know, you have to be flexible. Literally, you have to be willing to change your business and your business plan. Um, has to be very organic because you're doing takeout and delivery like is 100%. You know, we right. do uh, take and bake, you know, you know, staying on our toes and, and staying active and letting the community know and being very transparent over why we decide not to open, what's happening, our numbers are rising here. So, you know, that decision was very, very hard um, to not to open um, because we want to see our community, but we also need to protect them. We are a small restaurant.
0: Yeah, I really respect you for making that that decision and I, I understand how difficult that is. Adrian, I'm so grateful that you took this time to speak with me and to share all of your wisdom and perspectives. Thank you so much. Thank you. To get more info about this show, you can go to the tableunderground.com. We will have all the links to reach Adrian as well as this show, and you can follow us on all the social medias and also wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tegan Engel and this is the Table Underground. Thanks for listening oh thank you did you hear my
1: kids screaming yeah like, ah. <laughs> it's like pants is optional in this house so i was like really hoping that they weren't going to run by the camera because they usually love to come upstairs and wave and say hi to I'm talking to so i was like it's been pants option at the optional at yeah. this house so i never know if they have a mom, or mom. oh my
0: goodness yeah